Welcome, everybody, to our weekend. And before we just jump in right now, I want to remind those of you in our campuses or online, perhaps, who might be interested in taking a trip with me to Turkey and Greece to relive the book of Acts, the churches of Revelation, and several of the epistles of the New Testament. I'll be leading a journey at the end of May of next year and the beginning of June. You can go to wooddale.org calendar and then look under May and the information is there. And we have a meeting on December the 4th at noon at the chapel at Dean Perry campus. I'd love to share more information about it with you there as well. Well, how was Thanksgiving? Did you get all the mashed potatoes and stuffing and turkey that you wanted? I got to tell you, it is my favorite meal ever. I love the menu at Thanksgiving, and uh, I hope you had a great time. But now, now we make our way toward Christmas, and it just feels so rushed between now and Christmas Day, doesn't it? I mean, there are places to go. There are people to see. There are, you know, events to attend. And, oh my goodness, it's like the day after Christmas, the tsunami of weariness just seems to come in and the letdown. And and yet, you know what's ironic? Is that this is the season that we talk about, that we sing about, that we pray about, that we hope for peace, Right? And in all honesty, it feels anything but peaceful. Like I said, it feels so rushed and it feels so hurried. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel these days? Do you feel peaceful? Do you feel calm? Do you feel at rest? Do you feel peaceful in your marriage if you're married? Is your home, your family peaceful? Are your, are your friendships peaceful? Is it peaceful at work? Well, I was thinking about that. I did a little bit of research, and I found out that um, uh, there are some ways you can recognize people who really have peace in their lives. And I want to share a couple of those ways with you and and just kind of comment on their application spiritually, all right? Because I'm not sure that as these were written out uh, that the writer was thinking about uh, Christians necessarily, but it sure fits those of us who are followers of Christ. And it'll help you kind of evaluate yourself maybe. So first of all, you know, a person uh, that's really at peace, they, they, they tend not to judge themselves or to judge others. It just doesn't happen much because they're at peace. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, you know, we don't need to judge ourselves because, you know, Jesus has been judged in our place. He's taken all of our sin for us, right? And we don't need to judge others because that's not our role or our responsibility. We're not competing with them. We don't have to be better than them. So we're at peace. Uh, the second thing that I, I found is that a, a person is at peace when, when their thoughts are mostly calm. There's not like this storm in the mind, in the, in the brain, right? They're just, they're, they're, the thoughts are pretty calm. And you know, when you have the peace of Christ in your life, that's true. You, you really can have a calm mind. I mean, your, your thoughts are usually good thoughts, and you're, so you have peace. So would, that, would you say that describes your mind, or do you feel like your mind is in this constant storm of all kinds of you know, anxious thoughts and angry thoughts and doubtful thoughts? You know, a third way to evaluate if a person has uh, peace or not is to look at their lives and 
and, and realize they just don't worry much. I mean, obviously, if you have calm thoughts, you're not going to worry a lot. And people who are overcome by peace, if I could put it that way, tend not to worry a whole lot. All right? So how does that describe you? Are you a worry wart, or do you have such peace knowing that God is in control of this world and in control of your life that hey, you just don't worry much? And uh, last but not least, you can tell uh, that a person is at peace because their, their motive in everything they do, their motives are driven by love and by joy. And so there's just a a, a good nature about that person, being around that person. So with all that said and done, if you're like me, you're probably feeling kind of guilty right now. Like, wow, man, I am not a person who has peace in my life. I'm a worry ward. I'm anxious about things. And my thoughts are storming all the time. I'm kind of selfish with my motives. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just tired. How do you get that place where you have peace? Well, Peace is related so much to our identity, who we see ourselves as, and whose we see ourselves belonging to. And by the way, if you're, you know, if you're feeling kind of down about it right now, don't be discouraged because, you know, even spiritual greats like Martin Luther, the great reformer, he went through a period of time when he really struggled to have peace in his life. I mean, he could not find peace with God. He could not find peace in the Bible. He couldn't find peace in the church. He couldn't find peace in the sacraments. He even went to Rome to visit the great churches of Rome and climbed up the steps on his hands and knees and kissed each step as he went till he got to the door, thinking that somehow that was going to bring him peace. Kind of reminds me of when I was in Lhasa many years ago. We were visiting Tibet, and I noticed that around all of the shrines and all the monasteries, uh, people would just walk around and walk around, and some of them had pads on their hands and pads on their knees. They would literally take a step, and then they would just uh, lay themselves on the ground and, and, and uh, prostrate themselves with their hands way out and get back up and do this over and over again in order to show respect to the Buddha and to earn merits. And that's what Luther was trying to do. He was, he was trying to have a relationship with God. He was trying to have a relationship with his word. He was trying to please God, but he was trying to do it out of himself, out of his own righteousness, out of his own rightness. And it just wasn't working. He was failing miserably as a result of that. So what Luther did is he just began pouring over the word of God over and over again until he had this beautiful spiritual aha moment found in Romans chapter 3. And here's what it says in verse 28. He read these words. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Another way to put this is, and not by our works. Paul writes in the, book of, uh, in the book of Ephesians, not by our efforts. It is just by faith. And so we get these two uh, phrases, right, uh, that come up uh, with this. And it's the idea of uh, what we refer to as sola fide. What, what, in other words, what Luther is saying is, is faith only and sola gratia, which is 
grace only. So his aha moment was when he realized that, that I, I get in a right place with God. I get in a right relationship with God when I, by faith alone, trust in his grace alone. That's all you need. And that's all I need. And it just needs to be sincere and real. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. And that, that is the essence of, of finding peace when I put my faith and my trust in God alone. You know, it says over in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In other words, Jesus becomes our sin, and he dies our death for us. And we take on his righteousness, which we talked about last weekend. You know, it gets imputed, gets placed into our lives, and, and no effort are of our own. The only thing we have to do, remember, is repent, get rid of the idols in our life and make Jesus the center of our life and to put our faith, our whole trust in him, who he is and what he's done for us. And that changes who we are and whose we are as a result of it. And that's the essence of the gospel. And if you remember from last weekend, I said one of the things that we need to do on a regular basis is preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, sometimes I think we look at the gospel as being this, this teaching about, you know, how to become a Christian. Well, we're past that already. We're already Christians, so we don't really need the gospel. No, the gospel starts with repentance, and, and it goes all the way until we stand before God, and we're glorified. And I don't know about you, but I find myself having to preach the gospel to myself over and over and over again, reminding myself that God loves me, that God has forgiven me, that my salvation is not dependent on my works or my abilities, because I, I just fall into that default mode that's in all of us to kind of want to work out my own salvation. And that just leads to anxiety and frustration. Because, you, you know, if you're trying to do that, you need somebody to approve of that. And God has already said he doesn't approve of it. That there's nothing I can do to earn my way into heaven. So what I end up doing is I try to get other people to, to kind of say I'm, I, I'm good. And all that leads to is anxiety and worry. I read a statistic the other day that, you know, over 40 million Americans really, really I mean, have a serious struggle with anxiety. And 32% of adolescents struggle, I mean, not a little bit, but I struggle a lot with worry. And I think a lot of this anxiety and worry is coming from the fact that we don't have peace because we haven't embraced what God has done for us. And we're not living in the joy of all that God has done for you and for me. You see, our sin nature is to want to be in control. Our sin nature is to want to pilot our own lives you know, at this time of year, one of the things I try to do is I, I try to watch the whole Hobbit and Lord of the Rings series. You may not be into it, but I really enjoy what Tolkien wrote. And, you know, there's such a powerful picture and, 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 and truth that emerges in that whole series, Lord of the Rings. And that is when human beings uh, want power and have power, it always corrupts them. It always, it always turns them evil. The worst comes out of them. Power and pride, they consume us. They destroy us as a result. 
And so there's this battle between, am I going to surrender power over, or am I going to keep the power? And when I try to keep the power, it destroys my life. And that's a picture of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Adam and Eve, instead of trusting and resting their identity as God's creation, they try, to, they try to take their identity in themselves. They try to own power themselves. They try to be their own gods, and it just ruins their life. We were not created to be our own gods. We were not created with the capacity to have power and only do good with it. Only God can. When we get a hold of power, it corrupts us. Look at our world. Look at our governments. Look at our religious institutions. Look at our businesses. Look at our own lives. In order to truly know my identity as a follower of Christ, in in order to truly experience this peace we're talking about, I've got to be willing to surrender every aspect of my life and say, God, I don't own me anymore. You own me. There's a powerful passage that reminds us of that. And especially uh, apropos for our culture today, which is so sexualized. Paul was writing the Corinthians, the sexualized city of his day. And look what he said in 1 Corinthians. He said, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, he says, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. And he says, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Underscore that. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, I've got to sell out to God to the point that I even relinquish the control of my body physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. It belongs to God. And it needs to be used for God's purposes, per God's prescription. And again, you know, we live in a culture that says your body is your own. Your life is your own. You are its own master. You are its own God. And look what we're doing. Look what's happening as a result of that. Have you surrendered yourself completely to the Lord? Romans 12, 1, said, Paul says, I, I beseech you, and in the old King James, which I memorized, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what is God's perfect will. Are you surrendered fully to him? If not, that's probably why you lack peace in your life. Because you're looking for someone or something else to give you a sense of satisfaction, and this world cannot. Only Christ can, and he is enough. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? Will we behold him in his sufficiency? Will you? Will I? And that takes us then to the passage that we looked at last weekend in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul wrote, and he says, excuse me, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, after the fact, okay, you've come to Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. 
Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. That's such a beautiful picture of, of Christmas, isn't it? You know, we, we oftentimes think about at yeah, Christmas Eve, you know, the, the angels, the chorus, right, from heaven, and looking up and declaring, you know, God's, God's will in heaven now on earth. He's come here. So even though we live on this earth, Paul's saying, keep your mind, keep your heart focused on heaven, meaning keep your eyes and mind and heart focused on who Christ is and what he has done, even while you sojourn on this earth. Because remember, we're passing through. We're going to be with him someday. And yes, someday he's going to come back and he's going to renew this earth, renew this universe to what it was always supposed to be. Is that a pipe dream? Is that a psychological crutch? I believe it's the truth. And I believe that truth is backed up by so much of Scripture and what it's prophesied and what's already come to be. And as I watch what the Bible tells about humanity without God and its, its peril and its ending, I see it being played out. And to me, that's as much proof that the Word of God is true, that heaven is real, as the other passages of Scripture and those promises are as well. So what I want to do right now is I just want to kind of um, summarize uh, what, we just, what we just read, all right? And, and some of the things that we've learned over the last uh, uh, weekend or so, okay? Number one, we get it wrong, okay? We get it wrong when we think that righteousness is the standard we set up for ourselves in order to accept ourselves, okay? And that's what we do. Our tendency is to set up a standard for ourselves. And if I'm, if I'm this good, then I'll be acceptable. And as long as I'm acceptable to me and the people I want to accept me, then therefore I must be acceptable to God. That doesn't work, all right? We've learned that. Number two, we get it wrong when we think that if others we respect accept and approve of us, that God will too. We get it wrong when we think that if others we respect accept and approve of us, that God will too. And, uh, you know, I've run into this uh, over the course of my, my ministry where people have come to me uh, over a situation or over a, an idea that honestly does not agree with Scripture. And, and they want, I can tell they want me to tell them it's okay. And in those moments, I just simply point them in the most loving way I can back to God and back to his word. And I simply say, it doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what you know, some uh, liberal pastor told you or some liberal church teaches. This is what the word of God says. Let's not distort the truth. Here's the truth. And will I accept that? And will I live by that? Number three. We get it right when we realize that what makes us acceptable to God is not our past or present condition, but Christ's past, present, and future person and position. In other words, what matters is how God sees his son. And however God sees his son, then past, present, future is how God sees you and me, past, present, future. He gives, us, he gives us a new past in Christ. 
So your past, old things are washed away. He gives us a new present, a new future. Behold, all things become new. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All right? Number four, it doesn't matter what kind of day you've had or how disobedient you've been. God loves you just the same. Why does he love you just the same? Because your, his love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on what Christ did for you and me. Now, does that mean we can just go on and sin? Well, Paul dealt with that when he wrote the Romans in chapter 6. He says, no, grace does not mean just go out and have, you know, have a party and sin all you want. He says, grace is there to help change our behavior. So as we progress in our spiritual journeys, we have less and less desire to sin as a result of that. And then number five, to receive God's righteousness is like the ground receiving rain. I love this illustration. It can only receive what the clouds pour out. You can only receive what God pours out and into your life. The earth doesn't do anything to get rain. It waits for the rain. The clouds form and produce and send the rain down. And all the earth can do is receive what's poured out. The same thing is true when it comes to our relationship with God, right? I, I, I can't earn, I can't get from God, I can't do anything to extract grace from God. Grace is just something that God, out of his generosity, seeks to pour out in my life and in your life. And to receive that is such a wonderful thing. Now, Paul goes on then and gets very practical about how God's grace and how our, identif our identification in him changes our life. If you go on up in Colossians chapter 3, and you get to verse 12, it says, he says, since God chose you to be holy people he loves, he says, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy. All right? So imagine you go to your closet, okay? And I don't know how many uh, suits or shirts or dresses or, or outfits you have in your closet. I'm guessing a lot of us have too many, okay? But it's as though Paul is saying, you go to the closet and there's only one outfit, if you want to use that word. There's only one bit of clothing for you to wear, and it's Christ, and you put him on, okay? We don't need more than Christ, some of us need to clean out our spiritual closets. We've got way too many things we're trying to wear. And a lot of it is what the world is offering us. We just have one change of clothing. We have just one garment to wear. That is Christ. And he never wears out. He's never out of fashion. Are you wearing Christ? He says, now, what this looks like when you put Christ on is you become tenderhearted in mercy. You become kinder, you become humble, you become gentle, and you become patient. Make allowance for each other's faults. That happens when you really are putting on Christ. When you understand him as your identity, you, you, you give space to people and forgive anyone who offends you. You're able to forgive like Jesus forgave. Remember, he says, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. So I'm not forgiving out of my strength. I'm forgetting, I'm forgiving out of his presence, his power. Above all, he says, clothe yourselves. All right, it's like the overcoat now. With love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. 
And let the peace, there we go, there it is. And let the peace that comes from where? From Christ. Where is he? At the right-hand side of God, but also in me, and I am in him, the Bible tells us. From Christ, rule in your hearts. That's what Paul meant earlier in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians when he talks about, you know, looking heavenward. Keep our sights, our focus on the things of heaven. For as members of one body, you are called, he says, to live in peace. He goes on, he says, and always be thankful. There's another trait. Always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That is the essence, okay? That is the essence of what it means to have my identity in Christ. It changes me. If I truly have accepted what he's done for me, if I truly have surrendered everything to him, and allowed him to take me over. Then he's going to bleed through my life, so to speak. Then his personality is going to start coming through me. His peace is going to start emanating out of me. His love, his joy, his forgiveness, his patience, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why in my book, Reset, I, I basically talk through that because that, that's, that book is so much a part of my life. It's, it's what I'm wanting to see happen in my own life. And I want, I want to see it happen in your life too. How do we get to the place where that fruit is in us? And transforming us. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, really, I mean, when you really get your identity with Christ, can he, can he honestly really change you that much? Can he transform you that much? So I want to close with a, with a true story. It, it happened recently, and, and you and I are connected to it more than you realize. You know, here at Wooddale Church, we are going to try to plant 30,000 churches in a couple of parts of the world where less than 1% of the people are believers. And we've already begun that effort. We hope to accomplish it by 2032. So I had a chance recently to be over in one of those countries and I was talking to our partner there. He was telling me how God is at work through what you give to provide the training materials for people who are coming to faith in Christ and then becoming pastors and leaders who are going to villages that have never heard of Christ. And he told me about a man named Lawrence, who's, who's one of the pastors that you've provided training for. And uh, he's growing in his faith. He has a very evangelistic heart. And one day he was at a bus stop and he met a man named Jiden. Now, what makes Jiden so unique is that he was from a village called Gorbanga. I'm not making this up, all right? Gorbanga. And Lawrence had gone to Gorbanga many times to try to share the gospel, but it had not been very successful. It was a long motorbike ride to get there. Then he had to get off his motorbike and hike for seven hours into the mountains in very dangerous, difficult terrain where there's wild animals and tigers. Can you imagine that? And he did it five times over five months, once a month. 
But every time he showed up, there was drunkenness in this village. There was fighting and quarreling, and, and no one would listen to him. It was kind of dangerous. And so he'd hike seven hours back down, get back on his motorbike, and head back to home again. He had pretty much given up on the idea of, of going there anymore. But here he is now, and he meets Jiden at the bus stop. And Jiden had come all the way down from Gorbanga to the city where, where uh, Lawrence was. And uh, Lawrence was so excited to find out where Jiden was from. They rode on the bus together, and Lawrence was kind of sharing with him why he had come to Jiden's village and what he was hoping to do and what he was hoping to share. And you know, he talked about God, and they got... Uh, off the bus, and Jiden went, you know, his way, and and Lawrence went to a cancer hospital, where he was going to go and visit patients, and you know, hopefully pray for them, tell them about Jesus, and lo and behold, he comes into one of the uh, rooms there in the cancer hospital, and and he meets this man named B2, and B2 happens to be from Gorbanga as well, and so he he shares the gospel with B2, and he prays with him. And B2 says, "You've got to come back to my village. I, I just I would love to greet you and and uh, introduce you to the people." And so Lawrence leaves, and he goes, "Okay, I guess this is a sign from God not to give up on that that unreached village." And so he makes his plan, and he and he heads up there. You know, he drives his bike as far as it'll go. He walks for seven hours and he shows up. It's kind of late in the day and he meets somebody and he says, can you tell me where B2 lives? And they let him know that B2 has died from his cancer. And Lawrence is just brokenhearted about the whole thing. He says, well, do you know where Jiden lives? He says, yeah, I know where Jiden lives. And he, he takes him to Jiden's home. And when he shows up, Jiden is outside of his little hut and he's, um, He's sharpening his machete, and he has this very intense and kind of angry look on his face. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd want to visit somebody who's sharpening their machete and doesn't, you know, look real happy. Well, Giant recognizes him and tells him to come over, and he says, it's late at night. Why don't you stay with me? It's too dangerous to go back to the jungle. And so uh, Lawrence decides to stay. And while Lawrence is there, he hears Jiden's story. And Jiden tells him, I used to live in another village. I was married. I had four kids. I was having trouble in my marriage. And one day, my father-in-law came, and he and my wife's family, brothers, they kicked me out of my own house, and they took over my possessions, and they told me I had to leave or my, you know, my life would be threatened. And he said, that's how I ended up here in Gorbanga. I wandered away from that village trying to find a place where I could settle. I was so angry. Everything I had had been taken from me, including my four children. And I met a woman here, and I, I married her now. And he said, I had gone down to the city where I met you. And I had gone down there to visit my oldest daughter who's in college there. And he said, when I met her, she said to me that I could not see her again. Because if, if you know, her mother and her, her uh, grandfather and others found out that, she, you know, that he had visited her, they would disown her. So she said to her dad, please don't, I don't ever want to see you again. And it made him so angry and so upset that he went home. He made up his mind. He was going to take his machete. He was going to go and kill his first wife and his children and the rest of the family and then turn himself into the police. But he said, ever since I met you on the bus, I haven't been able to do that. But I sharpen my machete every day thinking about doing it. And so Lawrence shared his story. And then Lawrence shared 
God's story and talk about Jesus' love and Jesus' forgiveness to those who even crucified him. And the Spirit of God took that and so convicted Jidon that Jidon said, literally, and, and this is what he said, can he also save such a worse sinner as I? And Lawrence says, yes, he can. And there in that hut, Jidon and his wife, his second wife, knelt down and gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. And he's a different person today. Now he's one of the pastors that you and I are providing training for. He's already started his own church and he's sharing the gospel in that village and people are coming to faith even now as I speak. Why did I tell you that story? Because I want you to know that Christ can change our lives. When we get our identity straight, when we get our identity in him, when we surrender, when we surrender to his presence, when we embrace him completely, when we let him take us over, when he becomes our identity, and not other people, and not our sexuality, and not circumstances, and not money, and all the things the world offers, we are satisfied with him and him alone, that's when we find peace. Will you pray with me? Lord, my prayer as we head into this Christmas season is that we would go into it not in a rush, that we might even learn to say no to some things, that, Father, we would slow ourselves and slow our families down, remind ourselves why, why do we even celebrate this season? is because you came and sent your son to give us a new identity, an identity of peace and hope found in Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend as we start our brand new Christmas series.